0: So today is Wednesday, February 6th, 2019. My name is Cameron Wolfe. I'm sitting here in Third Root Community Health Center in Flatbush, Brooklyn, interviewing Jelani Fontaine for the New York City Trans Oral History Project. Um, Jelani, can you introduce yourself and just say um, kind of your, your constellation of identities that you want to share with us and also what pronouns you use?
1: I, I like the image of looking up in the sky to kind of <laughs> talk about who I am. Um, or I could look down at the ground, too. Mm-hmm. So I'm Juliete Fontaine. Um, I use they, them pronouns. And I identify as a queer and trans, non-binary, um, Latinx person, uh, first generation of Cuban immigrants, um, native New Yorker, Brooklynite, um, there's a lot of other things, uh, sick and disabled, um, I think of those as being some of my main planets in my constellations, (laughs) um, I could certainly add on to that, I'm somebody who does a lot of healing work, I'm somebody who identifies as an artist and a poet, um, yeah, I'll start with those. Great, um,
0: so I, um, I' particularly interested in, um, as I explained in kind of spirituality and care work and how those pertain to collective action and um, liberation. and so I'm curious just to start if you could talk a little bit about the religious and spiritual um, groundings that you mm. grew up in um, and I borrowed that question from Krista Tippett and her podcast on Being. So
1: <laughs> shout out to Krista <laughs> so um Oh, it's interesting, because on the surface, like the the other kids who were in my community, I grew up as a Catholic kid. You know, my parents were Catholic. everybody was always Catholic. Um, but the the other stuff underneath that was more complicated. Um, I had people in my family who were santeros, you know, who were definitely involved in santeria and different traditions who were not very well accepted by the rest of the family. So there was a lot of awareness of this kind of rift in my family because of that. And then, and this wasn't talked about too much either, my grandmother's sister at some point became a Jehovah's Witness. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother, who at the time was in her 50s, also converted and became a Jehovah's Witness, just kind of out of the blue. We never knew why, it was never talked about. So, um, yeah, so that happened. So I grew up in this very Catholic family that also didn't necessarily go to church with a grandmother who was really different than any other grandmother who I knew, and was kind of, she was kind of a witch. You know, she would wear black, she was an herbalist and a healer, she would dig up herbs in Prospect Park. She would make all kinds of poultices and things that would, you know, help us out when we had a fever, when we were sick. She would lay hands on us, stuff like that. But on the other hand, she was also a very rigid, um, you know, Jehovah's Witness and she would put tracks under my pillow, you know, to kind of like mm get me on that side and try to leave the watchtower for me. You know, Mm. like (laughs) that kind (laughs) of thing. So it was really interesting. So I had a sense as a kid that there was a lot of different kinds of dogma that I didn't understand. Mm. But that I really enjoyed feeling this sense of connection and community that sometimes I got when I was in church. Um, That felt really good. But I didn't like the kind of hierarchical very top-down feeling that I got at the same time. So it felt like parts of me were welcome and acknowledged, and parts of me were not even you know, on the same board. So, yeah.
0: So I'm curious what, um, so your, was that your mom's mom or your dad's mom? My mother's mother.
1: Mother's yeah. mother.
0: Um, so you kind of talked a little bit about how her uh, witchiness and healing um, religious practices showed up as far as um, herbs and Mm -hmm. these different things, like what else in your um, basically you didn't go to church very often, Mm -hmm. like how else did these things, your family's Catholicism um, or the um, like Santeria like how did that show up in the day to day everyday life of your family
1: so there was definitely a sense of us paying attention to the different saints who were associated with our birthdays Stuff like that. Um, we did have some different saints and pictures up, but not as much as some of our friends did. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I was aware of things like, uh, you know, I, I would have to be aware of the evil eye, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that I was told about when I was a kid, you know. So there were, there were different things like that. And then there were other things that were just kind of family beliefs or what other people would call superstition, mm-hmm. like I wasn't supposed to walk backwards. Because the devil does that, so cut it out, you know. like I would be told things like that as a kid. Mm-hmm. And whether that was just kind of like my grandmother's thing or what it was associated with, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit more about um, uh, what New York, like what New York you grew up in as a native New Yorker.
1: Yeah, well, certainly... Yeah, I mean, there's so many layers of different identities that the city's been through and within any given year, so many different layers of identity within different neighborhoods, you know. it's There's been so much change and it's kind of, I do think of it as layers or almost like a book that you're leafing through. You're always going underneath and underneath and underneath. There's that last page, it's the first way that the neighborhood looked to somebody a million years ago you know, when the city was first developed and then who knows what happened after that. So, yeah, um, when I was a kid, I grew up in Park Slope, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is, you know, for people who don't know it, is a a very gentrified neighborhood, you know, in present day. It's a place where folks who are fairly, really wealthy live. When I was growing up, it was still a working class neighborhood. Um, It was mostly Irish and Italian and there was... Um, on the on the edges, there was a, there were a few different Puerto Rican families, a couple of black families along the park side. So I had a sense of like where all the Latinos were. You know, there was a kind of like map in my head around the neighborhood of where I could find everybody. And most of those kids I knew, and those families went to school with them. You know, our parents hung out with each other. Um, yeah, and it was the kind of place where uh, you know we would all play in the street. You know, after school, the doors would open and we'd all be on the street and we'd just be out until it got dark. And then we'd go inside and we'd eat. Um, So there was a sense of community, you know, of different... When we had things like block parties, they were huge. You know, it was a thing that everybody really showed up at. Um, Yeah, so I have a lot of good memories of things like that. Mm-hmm. That really felt like a, a good neighborhood feeling and the kind of thing that gets fetishized for a lot of people now. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of New York that people want when they when they come to New York, you know. When mm-hmm. I see my friends come to New York, like what they expect. It's like, that's not really here in the, anymore in the same way, you know. Or it looks really different, mm-hmm. you know. It's much, much smaller, you know. It can be like within the same building. There's that feeling. Um, but it used to be just the whole neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did your How did your family um,
0: end up, kind of, from Cuba into that community in Park Slope?
1: Um, my My parents, back in the fifties, like a lot of Cubans, actually would before the revolution, um, come migrate to to the U.S. up north and work. You know, work in the sweatshops, get money, come home, and you know, just have that money for the family. So that would happen periodically. There'd just be waves of young people that would come up in the summer, you know, just go up north. There used to be a ferry that would take you from, uh, I don't know if it was from Havana, but it was from Cuba to Key West, and then you would just drive up all the way up and people would work at the sweatshops in New York. And we had a couple of distant cousins that were here and held down apartments and they'd warehouse, you know, just tons of relatives who would come and work. So they'd have one of these... You know, like pretty big apartments in Washington Heights, but there'd be like 20 people living there, you know, like, and working during the day and then coming home at night. So, my parents, my mother was the first one of both of them to do that. And uh, she worked in a lot of dressmaking places, a lot of um, you know, a lot of factories that were putting together, you know, clothes, that kind of sweatshop. She also worked in a lot of um, a paper flower. Um, she talks about that a lot, and she mm-hmm. has a really strong memory of that these stores that would make paper flowers for gift shops. So she worked in a couple of factories making these paper flowers, and she'd bring home fancy paper and she'd hide under her jacket uh, to make her own things. So, yeah, so she convinced my father to come up. So they they met and married in Cuba? Yes, they did, yeah. And then they both came up together, and what ended up happening was the revolution. At a certain point, they were here, they were working, and they were told that they couldn't go back. Mm So they lost everything. You know, their families, they couldn't see their families. They couldn't have their possessions. What they had was just what they bought with them, which was what they were expect, expecting to meet over the summer, you know? So they were stuck here and they stayed. And it was years before they were able to bring my mother's mother over. Um, it was very complicated because my, my sister, Um, My mother had had my sister, and my sister was a year old, and she ended up spending months there with family before they were able to get permission to bring her up. Mm -hmm. So they had to go through the Czech embassy. There was all kinds of machinations to get my sister. The Czech embassy? The Czech embassy, yeah. I don't even know why, but that, that was one place they were able to get in and get support from. So, yeah, yeah, it was really complicated times. So there was a sense from them of of having a lot of loss of home, loss of family, tremendous rifts that they could never repair. Some of them were political, some of them were really, you know, because of the experience. And, um, And also the fact that then, in those days, it was really hard to talk to anybody in Cuba. You couldn't make phone calls for many years. And even then, when you could, they were really poor. Mail was very inconsistent. You know, it could take months, you know, could never get to somebody. Trying to send a package was ridiculous, it was impossible. So it was very, very different than the way it is now. So they lost access to their family, and there was a lot of grief that they both experienced. Um, so when my grandmother came over, and my uncle who would already been here working, they, everybody moved in together. You know, there was that sense of, like, everybody's going to hold on to each other. Um, and we all lived together for a number of years and yeah, that's there. So there was that sense of like having to make family and having to hold on to the family that you have. And that was the main experience that I had from my family in those early days. Um, and we lived in Brooklyn. We lived in different places in, uh, Northern Brooklyn around, uh, where was it? Was it in Greenpoint? No, it was, uh, Oh, God, what's the neighborhood next to Greenpoint? I just forgot. Williamsburg? Yeah, it was in Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they lived in Williamsburg. I think that just when I was born, they were in Williamsburg. And, uh, yeah, and eventually ended up in Park Slope.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'm really struck with how you kind of first talking about the Brooklyn block parties and this kind of, like, boisterous, everyone-knowing, everyone on the block, and... And um, I'm struck by kind of what it must have taken your kind of your, your parents to experience that uh, that rift that break suddenly mm-hmm. unexpectedly from from Cuba from the homeland from family and kind of re, remake it in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, did you find, was there, um, so kind of when you mentioned the Park Slope in which you grew up in, that it was, um, like, you knew all of the other Latinx kids. Was there, um, were there other Cuban families, too, or did you, that that your family, that mm-hmm. your parents, or that you kind of connected to, or did it, was it more so, like, a, a sense of, like, Latinx, like, solidarity? Like, was there... I don't know if I'm asking the question. Yeah, I mean, it
1: was a little bit of both. Like, there were a few mm -hmm. other families who were Cuban, Mm -hmm. and we were very connected to them. Mm -hmm. And there were also other families that were Puerto Rican. There was one family of Spaniards, you know, and we all just kind of glommed on to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was a kid, the school that we went to, the Catholic school that we went to, was predominantly Irish. You know, Mm -hmm. so it was a lot of little white kids... Um, and it was, would actually be years before there were black kids, too, and, and other Latinx kids and Asian kids. But uh, when I was there very early on, it was me, and I really stood out. Mm. Um, and from the first day, there was all kinds of weird shit. So, yeah, and, uh, and my sister had that experience quite a bit. Was it just you? What's your, your, you? Just you and your sister? Yeah, there's two of us. Yeah, two siblings. She's seven years older than I am. Did you
0: go through Catholic school, kind of K through 12?
1: No, um, I went through Catholic school through eighth grade. Then I went to the high school that was associated with the grammar school. And all of these schools, this was like three blocks away from my house. You know, everything was very close by. And then in the middle of high school, everything was just kind of imploding. Um, What year would that have been? I didn't hear what year was that. What year was that? What what year was that? That was, that would have been like 83, 84, around there. Mm -hmm. And I had this, I had been trying because my sister had been in this school before me and was a star student and was going to go to school to learn to be a teacher and she already knew that she was going to do all this stuff and she was really brilliant and you know just really, people loved her, she was really wonderful you know and I idolized her and I tried to be like her all the time and really failed all the time and I was trying to do that when I was in school and it, I just kind of crashed, I just couldn't do it anymore, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't know who I was, I didn't know what was going on and as a kid I would I was doing stuff like I was trying to get in trouble and be caught so mm-hmm. I'd be thrown out of school so I wouldn't have to go to this Catholic school anymore um, and, you know, it didn't actually work. <laughs> Although at a certain point, I think that I was flunking out. And I think I flunked out and finally was able to transfer out simultaneously. So I'm not even sure which way the record shows it. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, I was finally able to get out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I went to public school and then flunked out of public school, did um, a GED program finally when I was 19 and I I was the valedictorian of my GED program (laughs) and and got to give a speech and my mother came and I gave her a bouquet, so that was nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it was, uh, definitely there was this real difference between me up until like uh, 14 or 15 and me after. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. What do you think was so, um, what made those school kind of educational environment so challenging
1: uh well certainly the the catholic dogma was really hard um certainly there was a sense of um you know trying to figure out who i was and not having any language or any example or any sense of how i could talk about sexuality you know and having that be really separate from from the experience that i was in with all these other young people trying to figure myself out um all the pressure to be different than what i was i was never enough i was never okay Um, that was really painful i was also you know my my home life was really difficult i came from an abusive family Um, my father was an alcoholic Um, there was physical abuse in the family and it was it was complicated i was always trying to escape home as much as I always yearned for home, because I kind of inherited that feeling for my family, and it was a very real thing, um, home was still a dangerous place, but school was dangerous too, and I was bullied a lot in school, a lot, a lot, a lot. There was, uh, people could really smell it off of me that I was uncomfortable, and that I was trying really hard to be something else. I had that sense, like I can't hide that I'm trying really hard. So it made me a target in some ways. I mean, I don't mean to like take that on myself, but I feel like that was part of the experience is that people had a sense of me in a particular way that ultimately led to me being vulnerable. So um, I wasn't old enough to know how to protect myself against things like that. And it took me a lot of years um, as a young adult to know what it meant to to understand myself and my own identities, and to recognize that you know these are this is what people will do, and it's not what I have to internalize. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't able to do that then, so it meant that I was depressed. I was really depressed, and really anxious.
0: Um, I'm curious. So, so you you get your GED, you're valedictorian, you give the speech, you give your mom a bouquet. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, were there, you um, kind of, yeah, you alluded that, that sexuality and um, was part of what was this struggle of finding out who you, who you are, mm-hmm. amidst the midst sea of people, whether they're Irish Catholics or, um, Your sister like people who you are not then I'm kind of curious what was your first exposure experience of a queer or trans community or um, queer trans elder or someone who you could who you maybe looked at and said oh oh that maybe
1: that's me um interestingly my neighbors um, right next door the apartment next door um, there, were, there was a lesbian couple. They wouldn't call themselves that, and they wouldn't to this day call themselves that. Um, but, uh, yeah, they were in their, it was a kid When I was a kid, they would have been in their 40s, and they were both school teachers. They'd served in the Peace Corps in the 60s. They were peaceniks and activists since back then, and they did everything together. They'd been together for a really long time. They were introduced to us almost as if they were like sisters, even though obviously they weren't and they didn't even look alike or anything like that. Um, And as a kid, they were just really nice to me. They were really kind. And they were really nice to my mother, who was often very lonely. You know, so if she needed something, they would rush to help her. So there was a sense of like, oh, they're really good to the family. Um, They also, I mean, interestingly, for my father, who was, Also somebody who was really depressed and who was an alcoholic, the times when he was drunk and we would just kind of push him away there was an edge of violence, you know, they would sometimes, like, be out sitting on the stoop with him and just start a conversation. And there would be a way that they would de-escalate things a little bit. Not, I mean, I don't even know if it was an intentional thing, but there was a sense of, like, oh, okay, you know things are a little bit more mellow. Now it's safe to kind of sit in the living room again, or I don't have to figure out how to get out of the apartment and go to somebody else's house or out the fire escape or whatever. So yeah, there was, uh, there was a way that they would kind of take a role like that. So when I was probably like 12 or 13, um, they would pay me to, to feed their cats when they went away, which was my first job, it was really exciting. <laughs> For some reason, I remember, like, the first money I made from taking care of your cats. I bought a cuckoo clock (laughs) from a mail-order catalog. I don't know why. I got very excited about it. It was mine. You know, I got it for taking care of cats. So, um, yeah, I remember I came, I, I went to their house next door. I took the key. I went inside to feed the cats, and I was early. And they were standing in the living room embracing, and they didn't have their tops on. And I remember going, oh... Sorry, you know, and I walked out and I'm like, oh, that's funny. And, and I didn't really put it together and it was quite a while and it was a process. But what I recognized was I kept thinking back to that, you know, and tr- I was trying to figure it out before I even knew it was exactly a question for me. Mm-hmm. You know, what were they doing? You know, who are they to each other? You know, what does it mean that they're affectionate that way? So, yeah, I think, I think other kids would have, you know, at, at that age might have gotten it much earlier than me. But, you know, I was where I was and how I was at that moment. So, um, yeah, so that was my first, my first memory. Um, I also, maybe a couple of years later, I heard about a cousin that I'd never met who was gay, who was a school teacher in Pennsylvania and who had a farm. And I remember really wanting to go and visit him. For one thing, a farm was really exotic in my mind, even though my parents were both like, they were very rural, you know, they were from farms and ranches when they were kids growing up. But I'd never been to a farm. I was like, I want to go to the farm. And I think some of it was like, I want to meet this gay uncle, Mm. you know, who I never got to meet, you know. He he died of AIDS a few years after that, he'd been ill. Um, But I started to hear nice stories about him from my mother. Um, not from my father, who I think was uncomfortable with him. So that told me something too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was like my first exposure to like some queerness, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Um, I love that that's, um, I mean, it, it, this is the kind of story of your, um, at quote, you know, lesbian neighbors, kind of lesbian in air quotes, because you said they wouldn't have used that term. Um, I love that they kind of both were your first employers, but also your first queer figures, but also this kind of subtle family um, mediator, Mm de-escalation, kind of, it seems like they kind of touched in your life in a lot of different ways. In
1: lots of ways, and years later when I was, you know, I never went to college, so I didn't have a college experience, a kind of, coming out college experience that a lot of people have that often is part of what connects them to a politicized identity you know like I didn't have that what I had was um, in my early twenties I started training in martial arts and I got involved in a feminist dojo and I became enmeshed in this culture and it was a very queer culture and it was very woman centric very queer and we were warriors there was a sense of like the work that we're doing is absolutely connected to the work that we're doing in the world to change things for the better so we would do things like we what was the name of it i'm sorry it was brooklyn women's martial arts which um later on became the large organization that's the center for anti-violence education mm. which that you might know them by that name cae Um, And they would do stuff, we would do stuff, like we'd march on Washington and we'd do all of our kata, like all of our forms in front of Operation Rescue, you know, like we would just like put it out there in the street. When we marched in pride, we didn't march, like we would do, we would do our forms, we'd show up in our uniforms, you know. So there was a real sense of like we take this into the world and this is part of the way that we're trying to change things. And everybody was very political and doing a lot of different things. So I was, I was getting involved in that in my early 20s. And there, I also remember these two neighbors at a time when there was... Uh, I heard a woman screaming in the street. And this would have been... I still lived at home. So this was the early 90s. And I remember running outside in my pajamas And my neighbors running outside in their pajamas, and they had baseball bats, you know, and I had, like, a bottle. We were like, let's go. Like, we're taking care (laughs) of shit, you know, like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? You know, so there was, yeah, there was a sense of, like, we're going to take care of our community. And I I got some of that from them. And I remember feeling a lot of kinship at that time and that moment with them.
0: Um, I'm kind of curious, like, you you mentioned this... um, uh, well, a lot of different. I mean, you mentioned how much New York City has changed since you mm-hmm. grew up, but also thinking about how much language has changed and kind mm-hmm. of your neighbors who
1: yeah. may not
0: so to this day identify as lesbian. Um, right. And I'm kind of curious. What I'm what I'm hearing is that um, what came first for you was um was like a a, a feminist a, a mm-hmm. orientation or. or yeah. A, a gay orientation. I'm kind of curious when, when transgender, kind of, um, uh, yeah, when that kind of came into yeah. the lexicon for you or when you became aware right. of or connected to trans people yeah.
1: communities? I mean, certainly before I had any language for it, um, I remember how weird it felt to be expected to wear dresses and skirts which probably weirder than it would for me now, mm. strangely enough. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I felt like there was... The way that I was being tracked into being was really confusing to me. And I never had the sense, you know, w- within my own, you know, like uh, just my own sexual orientation and also within my own gender identity, I didn't have the sense that... um I wanted to be a boy so much as I wanted to kind of move through the world a little differently. I wanted to be perceived differently, but I didn't know how. I didn't know how to get there, how to be, how to communicate about it in any kind of way. So um, I remember being really scared when people told me things like I don't walk like a girl. I remember being pressured around different things like that about, you know, the way that I should move around or what I should wear. And I would have a sense of fear that it wasn't okay, you know, to not pass as something, you know? Um, yeah. So it was, I remember being confused. I remember a lot of different confusion and questions from things like that. And uh, then, let me see, there's that. Yeah, that kind of continued through high school. I um, remember that back in the, back in the mid-90s, I started, you know, I started meeting trans folks, more trans folks, because I'd met a couple of people and I remember being intrigued and being interested in a way that didn't make any sense to me, you know, Um, and having this kind of curiosity. And I, but I didn't necessarily associate it with me, like me being curious about me or trying to work something out about me. But I think that's what was going on. And I was working for CAE at that time, and I was teaching self-defense. And one of the, I think early on as a teacher, as a new teacher, I was called on to do this workshop for the Metropolitan Gender Network, which is one of the first trans organizations that I was aware of. Um, and it was in an old Union building on the west side, I think in Chelsea, and, uh, yeah, wow, yeah, Leslie Feinberg was there, um, Sylvia Rivera was there, and I'd known Leslie from another women's dojo, you know, where Leslie was really popular. So we'd met, but this was the first time we'd talked, and I'd never met Sylvia and i you know i got to teach them both self-defense i mean they already i mean there's that sense like you already know (laughs) self-defense like what what are the things that we do to to stay alive you know Mm -hmm. so the the workshops would be explorations of questions like that you know like here's some things that people have told me they do These are some things that I think about. What can we come up with together? So that's really, you know, the way that I would facilitate, or any of us who were teachers would facilitate. So they had a lot to share. And I had this sense with Sylvia that, oh, like I I felt very free with her. I felt like she was one of my aunts. I felt like this big kinship with her. And I remember just being really excited to meet them both. And I knew who they were, you know, if I knew who they were. But, like, Sylvia wasn't famous then in the same kind of way, you know. And Leslie was. Leslie was definitely... Like, the book was out, you know, all of that. The book being Stonebush Stone Blues. Stonebush Blues, yeah. But um, then over the years, I you know, I, I would see Sylvia at different events. We'd march together a little bit, you know, in pride. And she was living in Park Slope at the time with, you know, a group of different trans women um, who I also knew from the Metropolitan Gender Network and from the... From Identity House, you know, and a bunch of different places, and I, I remember, I remember just having a ton of questions that I didn't know how to ask. And it wasn't so much about like, how do you identify? What are the words that you use? It, it, it was more like, like, how do we know who we are to begin with? You know, like, how do, and how, who makes those decisions? Does somebody make it for us? You know, do we decide on our own? Do we have the right to do that? You know, like it was more questions like that that were coming up for me. Um, but yeah, that was the first time that I was thinking about my own gender identity. Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, I love that that and I, I, I feel like this um, continues to be really important in, in spaces that I've moved through is this kind of emphasis on the community knowledge of so when you're facilitating something, um, at the Metropolitan Gender Network, you're facilitating a workshop on self-defense, but mm-hmm. you're asking the question to other trans yeah. folks of, what are we already doing? Mm-hmm. What do we already know? Um, how can we assemble those and practice those things mm-hmm. together, I think, yeah. is yeah. an incredible power for leader. like I'm, I'm, an incredible model for leadership, mm-hmm. um, but also community building.
1: yeah yeah, it was it was really empowering to be part of those conversations and to facilitate them happening. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes me realize now in retrospect that all of my early trans people in my life, my life were trans women, you know, or you know, kind of like on the feminine spectrum. you know, other people would use that language. But yeah, all my early folks. And then I think it was like the first um, trans man who was identified as a trans man at the time that I knew was Imani Henry, um, who was facilitating a bunch of different workshops at the time around gender. Um, and at the time, Brooklyn Women's Martial Arts was asking questions like, who are we for? What does woman mean? You know, like, And there were, there were a lot of you know, questions like, we don't know, just trying to get some more information. So Imani facilitated a workshop and I co-facilitated with him. And we were asking ourselves some of those questions like, you know, so when people come, you know, is is there anybody who, who isn't allowed to be here, you know? And we had different answers to that question at different times, you know, in a retrospect, some of them would seem enlightened and some of them not, you know, like just depending on what stage we were in as we were learning different things. So, um, but I remember being in those conversations and I was helping to facilitate them happening while I was learning A lot of stuff myself and feeling kind of clueless, you know, but also just engaged in those conversations. Where were those
0: workshops that Amani Henry um, would lead? Like, where would those happen?
1: Well, through what organization? Yeah, the the two that I'm thinking of happened at CAE at Brooklyn Women's Martial Arts. Mm -hmm. So that happened after class. Um, I think we did a two part workshop.
0: Um, So. Um, I'm curious then, um, and we might be jumping some years here, but um, how you ended up deciding to go to acupuncture school. And you were, I guess even before you went to acupuncture school, you became a registered nurse. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. So kind of what, um, what made you shift gears Mm -hmm. into
1: um, that field? So... um I, I was a registered nurse for a few years and I actually got to a point at which uh, I was really burnt out and I had to stop working for a while and I was sick and dealing with health issues and by the time I was ready to go back to work it was a slump in the job market and I couldn't find anything and had been out of work so I was out of practice and would have had to be retrained in different ways so instead I, I had already been um, doing some teaching on a per diem basis at what was then CAE. And, um, you know, I continued to do that. I was making a little bit of a living there. And I just made a proposal that I could take on, I could create an off-site um, educational program. So teaching, just organizing people to teach self-defense classes off-site. Which would happen, but in a very disorganized way at that point. So instead I said, look, I'll be the person on site to help recruit and just, you know, market this program and grow it in an intentional way and pull together curricula. And I made an argument for myself taking on that role. And then also what I would be paid would be generated from, you know, what, what organizations, institutions would pay us for these workshops. So that was successful and I made this job for myself as uh, the person who coordinated um, our offsite program. So I did that for a bunch of years and then, um, you know, then also did the same thing with our youth program and worked with a lot of different communities. And we went through this financial crunch and this kind of financial emergency as an institution. And it turned out that the development person had been hiding some, you know, some issues and been covering them up so that people wouldn't be alarmed. And then. Couldn't hide them anymore, so we ended up almost closing, and the board just kind of fled, and the community stepped in and uh, and saved the organization, by putting together a fundraiser, and a few weeks raising raising forty thousand dollars, to help the programs continue running. We worked, we volunteered our services because we were all laid off as workers, through the end of. Uh, the season so that, you know, I didn't want, I didn't want to let my youth down, you know. What so, year would that have been? Do you remember? That would have been like 2003, three, four around then. And so everything had kind of fallen through in my life. And I thought, well, maybe this is the time to go to school. <laughs> um, I'd always wanted to go to, to school to study East Asian medicine. I'd most been interested in uh, herbal medicine traditions because my grandmother was an herbalist, you know, and that was, that was the way that she practiced healing. And I never got to learn that from her, so I was always drawn to that. Um, but the more that I looked into different schools, the one that interested me the most was actually a school that didn't have an herbal program, but was run by this really amazing Taoist priest who came from this remarkable tradition. And I was very interested in being part of that program and ended up joining that. And I went to school, it was a master's program, it was three years, three and a half years, you know. And then um, after that it was just getting my licensure and getting to work. So yeah, that's Mm -hmm. how it worked out. And it was interesting because it seemed to make a lot of sense to me to go from doing this educational anti-violence work and, um, you know, community empowerment work. To doing this healing work as a nurse, you know working doing community health, and going from that into the martial training that I was involved in, and then that into more healing work on a hands-on basis uh, as a clinician, as an acupuncturist, it actually really flows mm-hmm. so and I feel like everything helped everything coming after it. Mm-hmm. yeah um. And so you, so you did
0: acupuncture school at the Swedish Institute, mm-hmm. right? And the, um, your teachers, the Taoist priests, what was, what was that person's name? Jeffrey Uen. So that's Y-U-E-N. Um, I'm curious, like what, so, so you mentioned kind of your interest partly came, stemmed from your, um, your grandmother's herbalism practices, which, um, I imagine probably stemmed from Cuban, um, like traditional practices. Is that right? Or I don't where do you know. think she learns stuff? It's, from? it's a
1: question that I have. I know that my mother said that she learned from her mother, mm-hmm. which is good, you know. But it's not. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like mm-hmm. I, and it's interesting because I know that, you know, my family's Cuban. We're light skinned folks. Um, I know that there's different people in our family, you know, that racially, you know, have different appearances. So I don't know, you know, if this is an indigenous practice. Mm-hmm. There are things in our family that don't get talked about. There are things that get covered up and hidden. So I have a lot of questions like that. Mm-hmm. I know that it wasn't standard kind of first aid, you know, learning that she had um, it wasn't something that was kind of institutionally taught as far as I could tell there were very spiritual aspects to it but I don't know where that all came from I still don't know <laughs> so then um, kind of
0: curious at um, kind of under Jack for you and you're learning this um, this uh, clinical modality of, of acupuncture um, that also um and he's also a Taoist priest so there's Mm -hmm. also kind of a very spiritual cosmological underpinning to that form of medicine and i'm kind of curious how that transformed or shifted or shaped or challenged kind of how it related to whatever spiritual practices you were bringing to it Um, Mm -hmm. or how that kind of shifted your understanding of of spirituality, and of birth?
1: I think, um,
0: if at all, maybe it maybe it didn't. At yeah, all.
1: I'm not sure that I can articulate it. I think that it did in the sense that um, that there was this understanding. Look, there, there's, well, say, like one of the things that's sometimes frustrating, you know, as somebody who studied acupuncture, is there's a way that Western acupuncturists go through school, and. You know, people study as if like they're at Hogwarts, you know, they're like, I'm learning magic. You know, there, there can be a little bit of like a weird something that people articulate that's a little frustrating. But having said that, there is a sense of being connected to something else, but it's not something that um, is separate from who we are already. It's something that's there, and it's something that's a part of everyone. But there is a sense that when you do this work, and when you cultivate this practice, that you're able to access that in a way that you're able to pass it on to other people without diminishing something for yourself. Mm -hmm. So, in a practical sense, I feel like that's what I learned through the program, and that's what I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I can explain it more than that. Yeah, Um, no, that's, yeah, that's beautiful.
0: Um, um, and I can kind of speak from experience to someone who used to be your co-worker, but who is also, um, have the, the privilege of being on, on your table and receiving treatment from you, that, that there's a sense, kind of listening now about your experience, your, your kind of history of growing up and kind of beginning well, not beginning your professional career, because that started with cat sitting. <laughs> but as mm-hmm. an educator, very much the way that I, I feel like you approach acupuncture is, is still in that kind of community empowerment, kind of educational perspective of I'm going to do these points, and this is why, and this is how these things connect. And very much my experience of your treatments is a, a sharing of those tools and a sharing of that wisdom and a co-creating of the session mm-hmm. in a way. And I don't know if that's intentional or conscious, but it makes yeah. sense to me how you described it. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then I'm I'm curious, like uh, how how and when you got involved um, at Third Root and what kind of Third Root is. If you can share a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So Third Root is a holistic healthcare center um, that's cooperatively run. There are currently um, three collective members and two constituent thought partners. So that's our team of of five people right now. Um, But there have been different numbers of people in the collective over the years. And uh, our main modalities that we offer here are yoga, acupuncture, massage therapy, and herbal medicine. So we offer all of those services, including an herbal education program. Our, the, our main mission is to be able to create access to these services and to this information in an empowering way so we try to have policies that create access we have sliding scale fees for all of the different services and uh, we do it according to people's household income so yeah and there's more you know there's more that we try to we try to create together and so that's 3rd Root, and I got involved in 3rd Root in the beginning of 2011. I was on a healing justice panel at the, oh, what was the name of that place? I forget, but I was on a healing justice panel with Jacoby and with some folks from ALP, the Audrey Lord Project, um, yeah, and I can't remember who else. There were a bunch of us. And we were talking about healing justice, and I was actually representing, at the time, I was representing the CAE, so I was talking about anti-violence work. And it was an interesting conversation, and I had been working as an acupuncturist on my own, doing a home practice, but I was interested in working with other people, but it would have to be the right environment. I didn't want to work in um, the kind of The the kind of like really difficult, like almost acupuncture mills that people get into when they're first out of school, where they throw 40 people at you and you're not able to really do enough for anybody, you know, and it can be very difficult. So um, I was on this panel and it was really interesting to talk to everybody and I'd shared contact information with everybody because we needed to talk about the program and I got a text from Jacoby saying, hey, would you be interested in talking to us about practicing acupuncture at Third Root? And I said, yes, I would be really interested in talking with everybody about that. So I got to meet the collective, and uh, I had a, an interview and, you know, got all the information kind of broken down for me, and I knew that I was interested, and I was interested in having my home practice and then having a practice here. And, and yeah, and I got involved. <laughs> and that's, that's the beginning of that.
0: <laughs> um, I'm kind of curious... Um that you kind know, of how would you describe what healing justice is for you? I mean, you said that it, mm. it, it, there were a lot of different people coming from different perspectives of that panel, yeah. But I'm curious what for you that looks mm-hmm.
1: like. I think uh, I, I approach it from a very, <laughs> and it makes sense from a kind of clinical perspective like what it's like to work with people, um, and work one on one as well as with groups. So for me, healing justice is a sense of understanding that for for all of us in communities that are working for social justice, to create change, um, to write something that's wrong and create new systems that as we're doing that we have to pay attention to our own individual healing in order to be able to move forward so that we are nourishing movements when we're nourishing ourselves, when we're addressing our own pain, our own need to heal, you know, we're we're really addressing our wholeness as well as the wholeness of our communities. Um, so a sense of these things being being interconnected and inseparable um, and just as important each as the other. So yeah, that's, that's the main way that, that I look at it. Um, I know that it was at a time when a lot of us were talking about what it was like, this, this was before Occupy Wall Street, but like what it was like to be really involved in direct action stuff and seeing people who were just exhausted and getting sick all the time and, you know, and then also people who were dealing with new disabilities, you know, and injuries and how do I keep doing this? So that was a way that these questions were starting to manifest at the time. Yeah. Um, What was the role...
0: um, Kind of curious, like where in this landscape of the emerging uh, orientation of, of healing justice in social movements and this kind of um, interconnection between uh, the health of, of social movements and the health of of individual bodies. I'm kind of curious like where um, what you think the role of trans people, was in those movements or kind of, mm. you know, I know, um, Jacoby and I think another founder of, um, that's Jacoby Ballard, who's a, mm. a yoga teacher and An herbalist, herbalist yeah. um, uh, are trans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of curious if, if there were other folks involved at that, at that kind of moment of preoccupy wall street, 2011. Yeah. And then a, I guess a, a separate a related question is, um, do you think your queerness and your transness, like, how do they affect your work as a healer? Mm. How do they influence your work as a healer as yeah.
1: So I'm not able to think of individuals who had like really specific roles, but I know that, I mean my my own experience shows me that trans folks have always been at the forefront of, of, these kind of emerging um, responses from community and that sense of healing justice. I mean, I think about, you know, Sylvia Rivera and and Marsha P. Johnson putting together STAR. You know, always from that sense of like, how do we take care of ourselves, and that our own individual healing is part of all of this. You know, our own sense of like, do we have a home to go to? Do we have a family? Do we have a place to eat and a place to sleep? Do we have the very basics of what we need in order to be okay? In order to do this work and transform and question systems, you know, and push back. So I feel like trans people have always done that in some sense or another. And I feel like all the kind of DIY culture that other people have had to, to learn has just kind of always, by because of need, you know, been something that, that trans folks have been part of. At least ones that I know, you know, like trans community, especially trans people of color communities. Um, and I also think about like many many people in disability justice community um, who are um, who are people of color who are trans as well. You know, doing that same kind of thing. You know, thinking about um, how we create access as being connected to all of our political work. So, yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, that's not really a concise answer. but No, it's, yeah,
0: and I mean, I think it, um, uh, yeah, I'm kind of curious, this, this sort of like, um, it makes sense that, that there's a DIY emphasis to it. And I'm kind of even thinking back to kind of when you were talking about the um, workshops that you would lead as a part of a CAE of like, how do we take care of ourselves? Mm-hmm. How do we keep each other alive? How do we eat? How do, how do we, where do we, like, do we have a place to stay? Yeah. Um, and even kind of thinking about how that connects to some of your feelings of fear and confusion that there's this sense of um, the answers lie within, our, within ourselves. And it's a matter of. Um, it, it, what I'm hearing is that it's a matter of uh, finding other people who can who can affirm that and who can mm. problem solve that together. Yeah. And then make it happen. Um, well, we're Kay. just.
1: Bye, oh, oh, yeah,
0: yeah. Um. Uh. We're just about. Um, at times, so I'm. Um curious if there's anything that you feel if you feel like you want to mention that we haven't kind of talked about before
1: I feel like I could talk about all of it (laughs) for a long time um no there's nothing yeah
0: so I guess then kind of as a as a closing question um I'm curious kind of one what do you do to take care of yourself as a um Queer, trans, fat, disabled, mm-hmm. um, Latinx, healer. Like, how do you, how do you take care of yourself doing mm-hmm. this care work for others?
1: Um, I, you know, I ask myself that a lot, and I think asking myself the question on a regular basis is always a really good practice. You know, um, and seeing what answers I come up with because they change over time. You know, for sure. I think um, some of it is remembering that when I'm taking care of myself, I'm doing justice work, and that's that's a big thing. I had my 50th birthday party last year. Yeah, because yeah, I didn't really do a big party this year, but last year when I had my 50th birthday party, there was um, a trans person of color who's also disabled, um, part-time chair user, um, who's a year younger than me, and was really adamantly you know like in my face about like yes it's your birthday happy birthday and it said it's no small thing that you're who you are and you're 50 years old you know that means something to people you know and you too but it means something to people you know so that was something that i remembered and i carried with me so just that sense of like uh yeah it's it's a big deal it's a big deal to to get to where I am, you know, and to just remember that the love that I extend to other people is something that I always need to reflect back on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the practices that I've been doing lately is just actually asking myself when I'm in the middle of a hard spot, like, what would I tell someone I care about who was relaying this kind of, you know, circumstance to me, who was telling me they needed this or they made this mistake? What would I say to them? What would I say if it was a person who I was treating? You know, one of my patients, you know, how would I respond to them? What would I offer them? And I always come up with something that I might not necessarily come up with some other way. So, yeah, so it's a reminder to myself that I deserve that just like other people do. So I try to keep doing things like that on a regular basis.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for your time, sure. It's been a Sure. It's been a real pleasure. And I... Yeah, I agree. There's a million different things that I would love to ask you. We could probably talk for for hours, but um, it is nine thirty, and it's been a long day and a rainy one at that. Yeah. So, um, thank you though for your time tonight, but also all of your time and energy that you
1: take care taking care of the world. Thank you. So. Thank you for doing this.